0: I was thinking of uh, really contemplating the last couple of weeks as to where to go in our first uh, study series together. And I wanted to find uh, a book that would bring us all together to one particular place, a place that we already have in common, that is our very uh, human place as to where we are and what we all have in common especially in the past years, two or three years. And I uh, began to think of the most common you know, books that we would think of if we were looking for comfort, if we were looking for peace in a time of trouble. And you would think you know, that one of the gospels or one of the epistles. And then I couldn't get out of my head an experience that I had just a few years ago. It was just before, um, uh, actually just before we came here and one of the last sermon series that uh, I was able to participate with, uh, with Pastor Walt, Walt Groff, my, my senior pastor, um, was a series that he decided he wanted to do at a time when I think the world was a whole lot more peaceful than it is now. Yet he felt moved that he wanted to find something, find a, again, a touchstone, a human touchstone for all of us. And the book that he decided that we were going to preach through was the book of Ecclesiastes. See, we all had the same reaction when he said that we were gonna do that because we don't, we don't, if, if, if you're looking for, uh, I, I guess, uh, recommending a book of comfort to people, we usually don't recommend the book of Ecclesiastes, do we? Book of Ecclesiastes is, is uh, I don't know, uh, not too subtle in its darkness, if you will. And up until that experience, the only time I had ever been even asked or used the book of Ecclesiastes was where? Where do we, uh, as Adventists, normally uh, use the book of Ecclesiastes? At funerals, that's right at funerals, and so you don't think of it as a book that could actually bring peace and comfort. I found that not to be true as I went through that series, and every time that I've come across being able to, um, I guess, to help people with the book of Ecclesiastes, I hope that you will find it too. Last year, I I used Robert Alter's Hebrew translation in his commentary for my um, for my devotion. And in the, his introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this for the most part, however, his observations are properly philosophic, speaking of the author of Ecclesiastes, inviting us to contemplate the cyclical nature of reality and human experience. That's the touchstone. Being able to, to all, I guess, name what we um, all are and to look for the comfort that naming that and being in that place can be. And I think the author of Ecclesiastes does that for us. However, he says, to point out constantly the fleeting duration of all that we cherish, the brevity of life, the inexorability of death, levels all things. See, again, it brings us all together. There are only two things really that, that is universal to all of us is that we all are living and we all will eventually what? It's the, it's, it's the thing that keeps us level, doesn't it? That and in between all being sinners and falling short of the glory of God. But he says this, and I love how he finishes it. He said, of the propositions he insists on most urgently, only the notions of life's brevity and mortality accord with the consensus of biblical belief that had developed before the fourth century BCE. The central enigma then of the book of the Kohelet and I'll explain that in a second, is how the text of radical dissent in which time, history, politics, and human nature are seen in such a bleak light, how in the world did this book become part of the Bible? And I always remember when uh, Pastor Walt introduced us to that, even he got uh, midway through his introduction and he goes, boy, this book is dark. If we were to pitch this to a publisher, it is not going to make it on the New York Times bestseller list. I, 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 think of, I think of it because the way that it relates to us is that actually the conclusion, it fell upon me, and actually that's the first sermon that the elders here heard from me as when they were deciding to try and whether or not to give us a call here. And they heard that sermon and I guess they decided to. Boy, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? So to introduce you today to the words of the Kohelet, the book of Ecclesiastes. Kohelet is where we get it from. And I want want you to remember this. First, the introduction of the author of Hebrews is of course King Solomon. And I wanna remind you as to what the Bible overall teaches us about kings. Just off the bat, after what we've learned in the past couple of years talking about kingdoms and religion and power and all of that coming together, Bible think it was a good idea for us to have kings over nations or not? Not at all, right? Not at all. But by Jesus' day, the kings of Israel were pretty much enforcing Roman rule on a local level. We know of Herod the Great mainly because of one event, that he ordered the massacre of every baby boy two years younger in Bethlehem. All because three sages from the east told him that a new king was to be born, or was born. Although secular history doesn't refer to the atrocity, no one acquainted with the life of Herod doubts him capable. He killed two brothers-in-law, his own wife, Mary Omni, Two of his own sons, five days before his death, he ordered the arrest of many citizens and decreed that they be executed on the day of his death in order to guarantee a proper atmosphere of mourning in the country. Scarcely a day passed, in fact, without an execution under Herod's rule. What is said in the annals of the Roman Senate about Herod was a general giving them uh, the lowdown, if you will. He comes back to the Roman Senate to give them the lowdown on this new king in Palestine. He says, you don't turn your back on this one. To have a Roman general say that about you. And then, of course, we were reminded, actually, 800 years earlier, when Israel was warned about it. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. In 1 Kings, Solomon, I, I noticed last year in, in, in my reading that in 1 Kings, Solomon appointed 12 governors in all of Israel. He appointed 12 governors. And you're thinking off the top of, the, off the top of your head, wow, that is so cool. Uh, delegating, you know, uh, giving up some of his authority and delegating the rule out. Actually, do you know what those governors were for? Just to procure food for the palace. That was their whole job was to procure food for Solomon's palace. The primary focus for any king is to stay on the throne. The threat of being overthrown is constant. That threat, that fear is what drives all history's kings. I think that some handle it better than others, but all have been driven by it to a certain extent. So today we meet the king who calls himself also the Kohelet. The words of the Kohelet, the words of Ecclesiastes, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Kohelet uh, comes from a couple of Hebrew words. Uh, One, they call it uh, strictly translated, I love the strict translation, is a collector of sentences. I like that, a collector of words, a collector of sentences. And, and, it's, and, and he collects the sentences for a reason. The kahal, the, the, the root of that word, means assembly. So he's like an ancient preacher or a teacher. He collects words in order to give them to the assembly. So the king of all Israel now becomes, in this book, the Kohelet, the words of the Kohelet. To hear his words. He, even him, if you think about it, uh, talking about this power, he made a decision driven by the threat of being overthrown. Remember? It was his own brother. Adonijah was almost placed on the throne by a military coup. And when all that was said and done, even the Koheleth, even Solomon himself says in, in, in 1 Kings 2.24, therefore as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of my father David and who has made me a house as he has promised, today, today Adonijah shall be put to death. Even Solomon's reign begins with blood. I'd expect this from Saul, wouldn't you? or from Manasseh, or from Ahab, or any of uh, uh, who was to come along of a number of kings that followed Solomon, but you'd hoped Solomon would somehow be different. Because Solomon was given something that only Solomon received, because only Solomon, as a king, asked for it. We Remember from 1 Kings three twelve when he realized he was about to take the throne? He said to God, do now according to your word, I, no, God says, I indeed give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before, and no one like you shall arise after. God said, I'll give you anything to pull this off. I'll give you anything to sit on David's throne. Solomon asked for one thing, and what was it? Wisdom. There hasn't been anything, anybody like him before. No king, and nobody like him after. No one. He sets to put that wisdom then immediately to use. In Ecclesiastes, as he looks back, he says, I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, I applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. He was also given wealth beyond imagine. This wisdom, we believe, brought wealth beyond imagine. So you can see why he's considered the most blessed reign in all of Israel's history. We automatically take his asking for wisdom and God granting it, and we automatically put it together with this great wealth. Every time time that somebody begins to talk about Solomon, they talk about uh, how this was the peak of Israel's uh, day. This was the absolute epitome of Israel's day, but not according to the king, not according to the one who ruled over this peak and epitome of Israel's power and richness. He called it a, a what? An unhappy business that we are all thrown into here he wanted I believe he really wanted to though I believe he he had new innovative ideas but also the wealth and the power to make them all a reality he actually uh, filled in the Milo he built the temple in his in his palace he actually made a mountain and a valley in Jerusalem that did not exist he did it simply by engineering to be able to put the temple complex where it went to be able to fill in where it goes. Solomon was able to do that. And all Israel seems to live vicariously through Solomon's wealth and wisdom. I also believe that that was another reason why God didn't want a king, is because every human does it, don't we? We live vicariously through the wealth and the prosperity of our rulers. We've always done it, even today in a place that eschewed royalty in the king. We're still fascinated with it, aren't we? And Americans have our own idea of royalty. We have our own royal families, don't we? We're fascinated with it. We live vicariously through it. But with all the wisdom being the wisest of all kings, you'd hope that this one would be different. This one would be the one that defies Samuel's reasoning of why Israel should not want a king. And he starts out as one who felt at least wisdom had a shot at making Israel all she should be. He said, I applied my mind. I was given this gift. I applied my mind. But all of a sudden, he realized something. How far short wisdom falls. And there are some things that wisdom cannot touch or ever change, no matter how great the wisdom is. Because he begins to, give you the theme of what brings us all together, what brings all humanity together. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and all is what? Vanity and a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. He said there's a void in this world. There's something missing that can't be fixed. It can't be fixed. And all the deeds of, under the sun have tried, and it can't be fixed. I had all the wisdom of the world given to me, all the wisdom given to a king that had been given to none before, and I could not fix it, no matter how it was applied no matter how I tried to apply it. I said to myself, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. My mind had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is a chasing after the wind. There's something crazy going on here, he says. This is madness that makes even having to apply wisdom a chasing after the wind. Even having wisdom, Wisdom is vanity of all vanities. It's all in vain, he says. What could be the greatest tool in the human arsenal? Wisdom. What we would believe is the greatest tool. What we believe made Solomon great, even though we immediately pair it with his wealth, right? And his power, but what should have made him great was his wisdom. No matter what, there still is a madness. And he said that even having the wisdom is a curse and a vexation. In much wisdom is much what? Much vexation and those who who increased knowledge also increased what? Increase sorrow, for as wisdom grows, vexation grows, the Jewish Publication Society translation says. To increase learning is to increase heartache. The more wise I became and tried to apply it, the more sorrow I experienced, the more that I saw. It's madness, he says. Wow, the more you know, the more vexed or angry you get. The more you know, the more it hurts. I don't think Solomon was referring to everyday increasing knowledge, education, knowing more than what we knew yesterday, but remember who he is and his original intent. The teacher, the preacher, the Kohelet began as king and he wanted to accomplish something. He wanted us to know. 1 Kings 3.6, Solomon says, you've shown, and, and Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to, uh, to your father, my servant David, because he, to, to your servant, my father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. You've kept him from the great, instead, you kept him for him, excuse me. Let me look at this again, okay. You kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David. Although I'm only a little child, I do not know how to go out or how to come in. Your servant is in the midst of the people whom you've chosen, a great people, so numerous, they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? He wanted to make a difference. He truly wanted to make a difference. He truly wanted to be a servant. He wants to serve as he governs. His wisdom, he believes, can transcend what Samuel said a king would demand. He could transcend that. A king that could be uh, more than someone who just lived out his own selfishness on the backs of the people he rules. Did it work? No. It vexed him. It caused him heartache and pain. I said to myself, come now. I will make a test of pleasure then. Enjoy yourself. But again, this also is what? He says, this vexation and everything, I've done everything that I can, so I might as well what? I might as well enjoy myself. But he said, when I even did that, it was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use of it is? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine, my mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly until I might see what was good for mortals to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Notice, what does he turn to? He turns to anesthesia. Every time he opens his eyes and tries to look with wisdom upon, upon what he wants to fix, it vexes him. He can't, he can't do it. So he begins to anesthetize himself. Notice, his mind is still guided by his wisdom. But his wisdom tells him, don't, don't live with the vexing. Why are you still living with being angry and frustrated? You might as well escape. Lay hold of folly. Hey, there's a human logic to this, is there not? If I've got a way to escape the pain, let's do it. I think though, if I take a little side trip though, I think of today, if he had had any of the modern ways to escape that which is known, just insert it here, of all the ways that we have found to anesthetize and escape, of the thousands of addictions, habits, hurts, hangups that we rely on just to get us through the day. I'll stick with this one for now though. I'll stick with, the, with wine for now. You know, for anyone who's battled an addiction, they will tell you that wisdom or lack of it plays absolutely no role in the entanglement. Would you be surprised to know how many addicts and alcoholics that have IQs that are off the charts? We don't become addicts because we're stupid. There's something else going on. And actually, sometimes wisdom will get in the way. Because wisdom actually can lengthen the denial that an addict has in order for them to begin their journey of recovery. Wisdom just might be the one thing standing in an addict's way from realizing that their lives and their addictions have become unmanageable. Wisdom may still try to teach that we can think our way out of this. Wisdom may still try to teach that there there is a power we have that can overcome this. Solomon says he was being still guided by his wisdom and yet fell into the horrifying trap that these addictions hold. His wisdom was of no use, get this, no use of discerning this evil from good. And he looks, at his, he looks at his accomplishments. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Wisdom couldn't keep me from the selfish living out of this kingly power. I made myself, I made myself, I made for myself houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, orchards, pools, He's laying it out there, isn't he? He's laying it on the line. He's at the point for some reason that he needs to share this all. And it's almost like he says, you know what? I did all of that and I didn't even get to the worst part. The worst part is, is that I didn't do this myself. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was reward for all my folly. And what he says before this is, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and yet my wisdom remained with me. And everything that I had, I desired, I got. There's a real human cost to his indulgence as king. The temple itself was built by a quarter of a million slaves. Not to mention his house and everything else that he imagined. There's a real human cost. And I think his king, as Kohelet, as he's looking back now, I think he hears their voices and he sees them. And this is why he's writing what he's writing. All this, by the way, sanctioned by his wisdom. Sponsored, if you will, by his wisdom. This is a reward for his toil. His wisdom said, you deserve this because you have such great responsibility upon your shoulders. You need to carry forward David's promise to all this people. Who can understand what that responsibility is? His wisdom says, you are entitled to this selfishness, to this greed, and to this lust. And it'll all be justified because you carry this burden of ruling, by the way, a burden that 800 years before God told he wanted for no man, the burden of being a king. It's the problem of a human king. Solomon realizes something as he looks back. He says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had spent. In doing it, and again, all was vanity and chasing after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what, can be, or for what can the one do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Only what has already been done. Everything else is vanity and a chasing after the wind. It can't be stopped, he said. It can't be combated, not with wisdom, not with willpower, not with all human greatness and strength. I want you to note the first conclusion that the Kohelet wants to get across to us in in giving this this biography of, of vexation, this biography of vanity, vanity, all is vanity, to give us this, the first conclusion he wants us to know, the wisest man that ever lived, that human nature trumps all wisdom. You're not going to think your way out of this. We don't have the power. Wisdom gives us not the power to think our way out of this vexation, of this utter futility, this madness. What can be done? Only what's been done before. This is why there's nothing new under the sun. From Adam to us, our sinful nature is the problem and there's nothing we can do about it. There's no power on earth that can do anything about this. See, for the next 11 chapters, Solomon will explore all these themes. The usefulness of wisdom or all human means to address this unhappy business we are given to deal with. And all that is under the sun, he's going to conclude this way. The end of the matter has all been heard. Forget, fear God and keep his commandments. By the way, I'm not ending the book here. We're gonna come back to this. But this is just an introduction. This is how he ends the book. For that is the whole duty of everyone. Fear God and what? And keep his commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. By the way, God will bring into judgment everything. Now figure out why Solomon is trying to give us this detailed list of everything. If there's nothing I can do about it, not by wisdom, not by willpower, not by might, then all I can do is what? Is go to God. That's all I got, he says. Place ourselves, our deeds, all that we do under the sun, our wisdom, our madness, our folly, and have him do whatever he will do. See, he, he makes the list and we come together and we read the list and we immediately begin to judge Solomon. I've heard discussions in Sabbath school that Solomon will not be in the kingdom. Why? Look how evil he was. Look what he did with all the gifts God gave him. See, they read Ecclesiastes wrong. Why is, God, why is Solomon even doing this? In Ecclesiastes. I'll tell you what this is for Solomon. And as he's winding down his life and as he's looking back and bringing all this up, God is calling to mind everything that he had ever done. Why is he doing it? Ecclesiastes is his confession. And he's showing us where to go and what to do. That's what he's doing for us today. That's what the book does for us. See, I don't know if, if, if Solomon knew exactly what his father was saying when he wrote this, but I don't, I'm not sure that he knew 100% of what David said when he wrote this. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant, my decrees that I shall teach them, their sons also forevermore shall sit on the throne. Forevermore, it says. By the way, there is only one of David's sons sons who sits on the throne forever our son of David our son of man our son of God see that fruit of David is exactly why Solomon can conclude what he's concluded I will let God judge it's almost like the Kohelet is saying I I know what you think of me you've been reading first and second kings and first and second Samuel I know what you think of me There are some of you that don't even think that I deserve to be in the kingdom. And you know what? You're right. But when it all comes down to it, I will lay it all out exactly who I was, not holding anything back. I'll let God bring it all to mind, and I will let Him judge. I'll let God put His own Son on my throne. And in that matter, all will be concluded. You see, because there was another wise Israeli teacher, preacher, Kohelet, if you will, that concluded the same as Solomon 900 years later. This Kohelet said, for I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do want is what I do. What I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Who does he sound like? He sounds exactly like the Kohelet 800 years earlier, doesn't he? So I find it to be a law that when I wanna do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, with my wisdom making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I tried to be different, but I could only do what has been done before. Wretched man that I am. Who will save me from, and rescue me from this body of death? Romans, Romans, 7. Romans 7. I'm getting there, but I'm gonna leave Romans 7 real quick. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I'm a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh I'm a slave to the law of sin. There then therefore is no condemnation for those who have faith in Christ Jesus. Solomon was willing at the end of his life to take it all and to lay it on God's judgment, good or evil he realizes there's nothing he can do about it his nature there's nothing he can do about his past there is nothing he can do about if he lives another hundred years can he make up for this if he lives another hundred years of 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 complete chastity can he make up for a thousand concubines and six hundred wives All the good tools that I had, he said, all the best. There was no one like me, and yet it was all utter futility. Paul's come to the same conclusion. He just places a name on God's judgment of good and evil, he puts a name on it, and that name is Jesus. He tells us that God's judgment on anyone in Christ Jesus is the same judgment God would judge Jesus no condemnation. How can we get there? Well, right off the bat, and I hope the journey through Ecclesiastes, through the the assembler of sentences here, through the assembly of these sentences that it'll give us as we study this, how how can we get this? We do what he did. We hold nothing back. Ecclesiastes, this book is his confession. He may have been the king, but now he's the cohelet. He changed roles, why? because what he couldn't do for Israel as king, the good that he wanted to do for Israel as king, he can do for us in his confession of his sins. He can show us the way. He can give us the words. He can give us the experience. By the way, he doesn't do it through the rest of the book. He won't do it as a reporter reporting on all of his sins and misdeeds. He's a poet too. It's beautiful Hebrew poetry you will give us. We'll be able to remember things because it isn't just uh, laid out there like, like somebody from Nightline would. And also he hasn't resolved one thing. There are times in the book where he'll say, I'm still this way and I don't know why but it's the conclusion that he takes us to. The good that he wanted to do as king he could not do. Now is the Koheleth, now is the teacher, now is the preacher. I'm gonna try to do one good thing with the one thing that I have left and all I have left is my breath and my memory and my willingness to take it and lay it before God. This is who I was and what I conclude at least his understanding of God that he can take it to him because everything else is a chasing after the wind if we confess our sins he who is faithful and true will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so we look at the laundry list of Solomon's confession we think how can someone who did all that still be a son of God Well, if you have a problem with a lifetime of sin, intentional sin, sin that even acts over and above wisdom, and you don't think that can be atoned by a single act of the Son of of Man, well, guess what? Your wisdom is getting in your way. You're thinking too hard. Put your human wisdom away and call it what it is, a chasing after the wind. We can't can't think our way out of this. We must come to God and let him judge. I think my favorite part of Solomon's words are let him judge and all deeds, whether they are good or bad, I will still let him judge. Because he says, I've got no good deeds. It's a no brainer here. If I leave my judgment to me or to the church that is to come, he said, I'm a dead man. I've got no chance. With a human king, a human judge, I'm in big trouble, Solomon says. But the Kohelet says, I've got some words. I've got some way for us to walk. That's the way of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, Paul, John, all the wisest of the wise, say confess, be free in the atoning forgiveness that only Jesus brings. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. Welcome to the words of the Koheleth.